Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. I'm delighted to be here today talking with Amy Chua. It's Chua, not Choa, who is a law professor at Yale uh, and the author of numerous books, including Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, The Triple Package, World on Fire, and most recently, Political Tribes, Group Instinct, and the Fate of Nations. Amy, I'm delighted to be chatting with you today. Thanks Um, so much for having me. I mentioned earlier that this is the first of your books that I've read, Political Tribes, which we're here to talk about today. But I have a note here in my notes for the conversation that Triple Package is a book that I must buy. It's, I literally wrote at 1149 today, That's, must buy this book. You're going to um, like that one, so, I think. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think I'm most looking forward to this because, um, not just because there are a lot of interesting things in the book that are worth discussing, but because I find that you know I am often having conversations about identity and tribalism and ethnicity and culture. And it's something that's interested me for a very long time. But there are a lot of Johnny and Jane come latelys who are writing books in this vein now. And oftentimes it's an effort to try to contextualize what happened in the last election. But this is a constant theme through a lot of the work that you've done. So could you Talk about the thread that connects all of the books that you've written. Yeah, I. Um, it's funny that you say that because uh, I have always felt like an outsider, but I've tried to turn that into a source of strength. Basically, every single book that I've written has a feature of being an outsider. So my parents are ethnic Chinese immigrants, but from the Philippines. So like triple outsiders, uh-huh. you know. Um, and when I go to China, I feel like an outsider. In this country, I feel like an outsider, but not in a negative way. You know, mm-hmm. it's given me an unusual lens. I actually feel very proud and grateful to have something slightly uh, different to say. So in my first book, World on Fire, I coined this term market dominant minority. And it refers to these, um, what was at the time in 2002, a really taboo topic. I got in huge trouble for it. Um, The idea is that in lots of developing countries, there are small ethnic minorities, like for example, the 3% ethnic Chinese in Indonesia that control a huge amount of the economy, like 70 percent of Mm -hmm. Indonesia's economy, or like whites in South Africa. You know, let's say they were 14 percent of the population controlling all of the nation's wealth. And I thought there's nothing controversial in just stating these facts, right? Because the reasons that some of these groups were so market dominant could be like because of apartheid or Mm -hmm. or whatever, but sometimes for reasons that are hard to explain Mm -hmm. because the Chinese in a lot of these countries were not colonizers. So anyway, I coined this term and it was about ethnicity and these outsider minorities that had a slightly different culture from the majority. Um, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother was very different. It was a parenting memoir about my daughter who rebelled. But again, themes of it were I did it a different way. You know, I, I, I parented differently from most Americans. I didn't think it was going to be so controversial because it was just my story. But it got kind of got co-opted in the media as, you know, she thinks that this is a superior way to do it. And it's a how-to guide. And eventually I just kind of rode and, and, and you know, I got lots of opportunities too. But yes, it's been a theme um, just because that's really the only thing I have a lot of insight into. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been lucky enough to turn it into an academic career. It's actually, uh, I write about in foreign policy and 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 um globalization and other things and it's 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 kind of been 
you know, my main interest. Yeah, I think there's a gift and a curse in having uh, a narrow interest like that, being well aware of it and taking the time to cultivate and develop it. One is that you don't get into a lot of trouble because you're trying to write things that are outside of your wheelhouse that you don't know anything about, which a lot of journalists could take a could take a lesson from that, develop your specialization and mm-hmm. maybe stay in your lane. But I guess the other danger is that there's the streetlight effect where you'll see the world and you imagine you're seeing these phenomena that may or may not be there. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I love patterns. Yeah. And, and sometimes you, you look for them, you see them. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I try to correct that by talking to people from other groups. Like I love being a professor because my students, they school me, you know, mm-hmm. and I am not somebody that looks for people with my same views. I mean, I'm just in every way, racially, ethnically, religious, um, conservative, liberal. I mean, I, I, um, I really do talk to lots of different students. So try to correct for things that way. Yeah. Yeah. I I think the, the phrase is pattern. We are pattern seeking animals, um, which is something I hear a lot, but often encounter in, in economics texts, but to turn our attention back towards, um, the book and the, particular point in time that we find ourselves in. This is the part where I ask you to compress the book that you took the time to write several hundred pages worth of material into a couple of statements. In fact, I may even go a step further. Um, This is even worse uh, where I try to do it and you tell me if I'm if I'm close. Okay. So I'm going to steal something that David Frum wrote, actually, in his review of your book, and it'll be interesting to see if you think he's right about this as well. Ethnocultural rivalries powerfully shape both international relations and domestic policy. Ethnocultural rivalries will not be reasoned away. Its divisions are hardwired into the human brain. That is his encapsulation of the thesis of your book from his vantage point. Is that about right? Yeah, I I think that's about right. Um, The only two things I would add is that the big twist is that um, they're hardwired in us, but we can overcome them. Yeah. Right. I think we can overcome them. So that's something that separates us from other primates. It's our natural tendency to be super tribal. But um, I'm not somebody that says that we should just give up, um, that we if we consciously address it, we can we can um, also connect and transcend that. But I don't think we can just wipe them away. Mm hmm. Like, I, I don't I think people who say just get rid of identity politics completely. That, that's a dream world. I, I might mean, be one of those people. But that, that, that that's that's <laughs> that's a good position to have. I'm just yeah. saying it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. I totally agree. Um, and, you know, just to maybe try to sketch out some of the plot points um, and then perhaps pivot to some of the points of agreement that I have with the book and then some questions that yep. I have um, as well. Um You start by surveying a lot of the supporting data that does suggest that tribalism is an innate part of who we are as humans um, and that it plays a role in everything, including politics. And then you look a bit further afield and look at international relations, various other countries where there are these market dominant minorities and various tribal factions. Um, And then you take a pretty close look at U.S. foreign policy and from your vantage point, recent failures in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq boiled down to in many cases, or at least in some respects, not that if we had known this, it would have all gone swell, but that a lot of the problems have something to do with not understanding the dynamics in these places, the cultural landscape, um, and that that often gets us into trouble. That's a perfect description of the foreign policy part. I, I And actually, I'm. this is weird. Uh-huh. I'm optimistic because I think we have been so stupid in mm-hmm. how we approach these things. And the, it, you, 
it's exactly what you said. We tend to th- see things in terms of these great ideological battles like mm-hmm. communism versus capitalism or, yeah. you know, terrorism versus freedom. And we completely, you know, in Iraq, the, the difference between the Sunnis and the Shias and the Kurds, we're sort of, eh, not a big deal, yeah. you know, or Afghanistan. And, and so, yes, that's the point um, that we— and I actually try to show that in the very, very few cases where we did start to pay attention, always too late to mm-hmm. the tribal structures, basically to the group identities that matter most to people right. on the ground, right. Pe- things that people will kill for. And it's not always national identities, right? Mm-hmm. It's often religious or sectarian or regional. But these are things that really matter to people. Yeah. And um, and I, I honestly think we could, whatever our goals are, we would do so much better just understanding a little bit about the people whose country we're, we're, we're trying to help or invading. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the examples you use there is the surge in Iraq, which from your vantage point, it seems that once the commanders were actually able to to get to know the various factions that were fighting against one another, um, they saw better outcomes uh, on the field. Starkly better. And that's another thing that's so frustrating. Everything gets politicized now. So if you mention the surge, yeah. it's like instantly people will have views about it, depending yeah, on, yeah. you know. But I, I'm not taking one of those views. I'm just simply saying that if you look at what happened, and it was too late, by the way, it was five years too late after right. we had botched it up. Depathification had happened. Oh my gosh. I mean, so many things. Yeah. Beheadings everywhere. But when we finally paid attention, and most Americans may not know that in addition to the surge, which is a you know, significant increase in troops, we completely changed our strategy and started to pay attention to these tribal loyalties, the sectarian differences, tried to bridge the difference. And it was dramatically successful. I yeah. mean, really numerically, I, I, you know, I give the numbers in the book. I, I made the qualification that I did earlier because you were offering it in the book as well, that this is not uh, a suggestion that if we only knew this, then all of our interventions would go swell. Um, but Instead, it's an insight that this is one of the points of failure, and it's a point of failure for a couple of reasons, both because we tell stories that are conveniently simple, um, because those are the easiest stories to tell. Right. Um, But I think it also is a reflection of what you see as kind of the unique American disposition to ignore a lot of these kind of nuanced tribal gradations that might exist around the world. Yeah, this is almost the most interesting thing is how much we differ from the British. Because when the British were colonizing the world, boy, were they group conscious. Mm-hmm. They had huge encyclopedias about all the different um, differences between the Indian castes and the religions and what they wore and what they ate. And then, of course, they they used that strategically to pit groups against each other. Mm-hmm. But they were very effective. And the United States, part of it is... Um, you know, I describe this as our, our blindness to the importance of these group identities, I say, can be traced back to what you might think of as the best of America and the worst. By the best, I mean that we really have been incredibly successful at assimilating um, people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds, mostly from Europe, you know, but it is true. The idea is, look, if if uh, Germans and Hungarians and Italians and Japanese and Poles can all become Americans within one generation, why won't Sunnis and Shias and Kurds, hey, they can all become Iraqis. You know, let's just have some elections. We always romanticize democracy. Let's just have some elections. Yeah. Um, and it's also this blindness towards these groups also reflects what I call the worst of America. And I now hate this term because I think it's one of these overused terms, but I'm just going to use it. I think it is um, 
also a reflection of uh, racism. Mm -hmm. So in the Vietnam War, I point out that a lot of U.S. policymakers and troops actually just didn't really know the difference between the Chinese and the Vietnamese. Right. It's like, ah, oh, they're kind of all oriental. Yeah. Um, and they are they are very different. In fact, they're kind of mortal enemies. Like China's huge and Vietnam's tiny. And Vietnam's entire history is in a way just opposing the Chinese. Right. And if we had seen that, we we would have done way better. I mean, I'm I kind of document that, but we just missed all that. So so part of it is that we just um you know, we just tend to not see certain differences because racism in some ways it's very group conscious because you're saying some groups are superior and some groups are inferior. Right. But in some ways it's also very group blind because it's like ah, they're all just slanty eyed, yeah. you know, or yeah, all, yeah, they just yeah. all have this color skin and you just lump them all together. Right. Uh, and so we, we miss things for that reason too. Yeah. It's funny. I was this morning while I was walking my dog, um, I was using uh, an app called Blinkist and I was reviewing um, Steven Pinker's book um, via Blinkist, uh, The Blank Slate. Um, and there was a, a section in there where he talked about our tendency, the human brain's tendency to organize things into categories and the way that we do this with race. Um, and uh, as you were talking just now, I'm, I'm thinking about the picture that you paint of this diverse group of American servicemen who are in these foxholes together, who come from all these different backgrounds and are of various races. But out there, when the bullets start to fly, the only thing that they are is servicemen. They're right. Americans. They right. are that. They are, have become um, another thing that you refer to, at least a, a small representation of an American supergroup, as yeah. it were. I mean, that's a positive side. Mm -hmm. You know, that the Amer the integration of the American military is actually, um, I think, a hugely hopeful sign in this moment of turmoil and, and uh, chaos right now. Um, uh, this is, you know, in the in the 50s when we started talking about integrating the military, American public opinion was wildly against. Mm -hmm. It was, no, this can't work. Um, and it, it's the this they 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 did do it. Um, and the studies afterwards really are very inspiring. It wasn't just black and white. Like, you know, Italian-Americans had never interacted with Mexican-Americans or sure, Swedish-Americans. Sure. And they just and yes, this um, it's a great example of you can pull people out of their tribes and just have them see each other as human beings. Yeah. And there's nothing like a war context for doing that. Right. I mean, that you're all whether in your foxholes or in your bunks and you all miss your parents the same way, you miss your children the same way you're eating, you're in danger, you're putting your lives in other people's hands. And that was one good thing that actually came out of even the Vietnam War. People said, for the first time, we really transcended these differences. I mean, if your life is in the hands of somebody else, you do not care what accent they have or, you know, what color skin they have. Yeah. And, you know, this is just a very brief sketch of all of the things that you write in the book. And obviously you you provide a, a fair amount of nuance um, as you're uh, unpacking things. Um, but once you've laid out the various foreign policy situations and you've introduced this concept of supergroups, you turn your attention back to the United States. Um, and in so doing, you point out a couple of things. This bifurcated white America um, mm -hmm. is perhaps a, a, an OK way to describe it. Yeah. And you also point out what's happening with the left, specifically um, the way that the left has turned towards identity politics. And there were two passages from the book that I thought might be useful to introduce for folks. The first is today, no group in America feels comfortably dominant. Every group feels attack pitted against other groups, not just for jobs and spoils, but for the right to define the nation's identity. 
In these conditions, democracy devolves into zero-sum competition, pure political tribalism. And the second I wanted to introduce right behind it, um, I don't remember if these appear right together, but you'll know. And it's a description of the left and the right and the way that they see the world. And I, I'm reading this because when I encountered it, I thought it was just so apt. Like this is precisely the way that they, they see the world and imagine one another anyways. The left believes that the right wing tribal bigotry and racism is tearing the country apart. The right believes that left wing tribalism is tearing the country apart. They're both right. That is, in my estimation, kind of your analysis of the situation in the United States in, in your own words. Um, do you have any thoughts about you know, what, what I'm omitting in using that to summarize? No, it's interesting. You know, in, in writing this book, I I'm, I'm, don't see myself as part of a political tribe. It started off with what you said. I'm an outsider and I'm trying to understand uh, how we got to this point and how we can move to a better place. Um, and so the funny thing is that the response to this book about political tribalism is political tribalism. Sure. So when, you know, I have gotten in so much trouble for the lines that you just read uh-huh. um, from both sides equally. Um, I've seen it in the reviews. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> it, and it's it's brutal. And um, it, it could make a pessimist out of me, even though I'm an optimist. Um, so I'm not equating anything. Like, you know, when I say that this is, you know, this is what the left thinks and this is what the right thinks. The first response is, um, are you saying that, you know, racism or white supremacy is equally bad as, um, you know, some campus protests? No, I can be very, of course not. Right. You know, of course, Nazism and white supremacism is worse. And, but it's just interesting that the first move almost everywhere I go is, but first before, I, I want to talk about this, Amy, but first, can you just admit that it's really the other side's fault completely? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. if we can just acknowledge that or, or even We something, need to know you're on our side. Yeah, or yeah. just that they're at least morally inferior. Yeah. Let's just like state that first, then we can have this. But of course, that's the problem, right? Yeah. That um, they're, they're, we're getting nowhere in this country. Um, I thought there was going to be a glimmer of hope with this gun control thing because- Immediately after Parkland, it was such a moment of human pain. And I really do think it started off nonpartisan, just a bunch of people in tragedy. Um, and what I worry is that on both sides, you see, trying to categorize, okay, are they are they activists? Are they right-wing this? And then it just, it's, it just gets hijacked. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point when it becomes a demonization of, of one side or the other, and a category, then I don't know, I just feel very... I think it's unlikely, um, no matter how large the crowds are, of yeah. actually getting change. So yeah. so that's what I mean by this kind of paralysis that tribalism, you know, no matter what happens, a news item happens, you instantly take your tribal sides and you just start throwing weapons at the other side. Yeah. And you you can't pass any legislation. You can't make any debate. You you know, you, you can't reach any compromise and you're just stuck. Yeah. And maybe quickly to to summarize the solution that you arrive at in the book, because it's it's a, it's a challenging problem. It is something that's innate, and even how we enact the solution is challenging. But you say that we can't simply have kind of this superfluous throwing together's of different people. That that doesn't work. It can oft, often cause more friction. But that we ought to construct a super tribe. That the um, that America needs to become a super tribe. What is a super tribe? Has America ever been a super tribe? And 
how do we get there Great. in your estimation? Okay, so I think that America is really special. Um, and this does, by, this does not mean we've been a perfect country. In fact, to the contrary, I keep pointing out that we have repeatedly failed to live up to our constitutional ideals. We have a great constitution, mm -hmm. but we have we keep you know not living up to it. A supergroup is um, let's take a country. A supergroup is a country that both has a very strong overarching collective identity. Um, American, for example, you know, or China. China, super strong national identity. But a supergroup has to satisfy a second condition too. And that is that a supergroup um, doesn't suppress all these subgroup and subtribal identities. You allow them to flourish. So at its best, a supergroup is a place where you can, somebody can be, oh, I'm Irish American, I'm Croatian American, I'm Libyan American, I'm Ghanaian American, and still be very patriotic at the same time. And if you look at other countries around the world, there's no, almost no country that has this. Like France has the first condition. It's a very strong national identity, French. Mm -hmm. But they um, do not let their subgroups, like the North African immigrants and the, uh, the Muslim communities, they can't wear headscarves. They don't serve the special food that they want in the schools. There was the burkini ban. You can't wear that bathing suit, which is a full-bodied bathing suit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of people feel that France's, um, in some ways, forced assimilation is what's led to so much radicalization. So they, in other words, they don't allow individual subgroup identities to flourish. We are actually very unique that way. Um, and so what I, my position is, there's, it's kind of all the rage right now. Um, there are really smart people calling for post-identity um, liberalism. Maybe you're in this camp. Mm -hmm. um, Mark Leela's written about it. And it's not that I disagree with that, that that wouldn't be a great place to be. I just think it's completely unrealistic to tell people, you know what, get rid of your identities. Uh -huh. But I'm ethnic Chinese uh, immigrant's kid. And very, very American. When I go to China, they they treat me like I'm from a foreign planet. And yet I get so much of my identity and who I am from just my background. You know, it, it just makes no sense to say, disappear that. Yeah. Um, uh, or if you're a Muslim American, this is for a lot of people, it's, it's an incredibly important part of their identity. So I'm not saying get rid of it. What I'm saying is going back to the supergroup idea that we What's special about us is we allow these subgroup identities to flourish, but here's where I can be a little bit critical of, you might call it the left, we also have to not only be about separate tribes. Mm -hmm. We have to cultivate this kind of um, collective identity that ties us all together, the sense of all being Americans. And that is not a rah-rah, let's just wave some flags thing, right? I, I think the right gets it totally wrong. It's not just about, you got to stand up for the, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But it's about trying to arrive at a national identity that all of us can buy into. And that's going to take work. You know, it, that, that, that's, you, you can't just tell a bunch of people who correctly point out that our founders held slaves or who see their own people being completely not treated the same way as people of a different race um, to say, hey, buy into this notion of this country as a great moral nation. It, it's not as easy as that. So in, in that sense that I, I say to the right, you can't act like all the work is done and just keep saying, hey, people on the left, shut up and just wave a flag. You know, that's not the way to build a strong nation. Mm -hmm. But what I criticize a lot of people on the left for doing is, don't do this scorched earth thing. You know, yeah. it's 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 one thing to say, look, we 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 have very special values, but we have really not done a good job living up to this, and we've just got to do better. 
there's it's one thing to say that and to say you, you know this is actually this whole country is built on lies. Yeah, this is yeah. a land of oppression. It's right. built by cowards and and to go too far. You know, yes, the founders were imperfect and ha- had slaves and. Yes, probably some of them were white supremacists, you know, but to say that their ideals and everything about them was worthless. I yeah. think you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, yeah. And and for me, it's I'm coming at this from somebody that um, has studied other countries that have really failed. Like, you know, my where I really am coming from is I'm a foreign policy person. I've looked at Iraq and Libya and Venezuela. These are countries that are failed states now. So I think a lot of Americans are playing with poison. They they don't really realize how high the stakes are and they think it's almost exciting and fun to say that. You know, yeah. we you know, we, we we hate the other half of the country. Get out. Uh-huh. Um and I I just think that's uh, it, it's really more dangerous yeah. than they think. In on this podcast, uh, folks who have been longtime listeners will know the phrase um, "American exceptionalism." Of course, is a familiar phrase, but something that one of my co-conspirators, Michael Moynihan, um, coined is this notion of these competing strains of American exceptionalism. It's America, the exceptionally wonderful, and America, yes. the exceptionally evil. Right. Um, and the as you were pointing out, this rah rah patriotism, which oftentimes can just kind of views into nationalism, where it's my country right or wrong, um, is distinctly different from sort of patriotic sensibility that is born out of these are the principles and ideals that this country is based on. And when my country is doing things that are consistent with those ideals, absolutely. But in that case, it's not even so much a nationalist sentiment. It's kind of this fundamental, perhaps uh, distinctly Western, or maybe to borrow from Steven Pinker's new book, and now I've name-checked him twice, um, Enlightenment Values, yeah, that, you, that that I think most Americans generally agree with, even if sometimes they deviate, yeah. oftentimes because of their pro- uh, political tribal allegiances. You know, I think here's, I think I agree, you know, 80% with you, but here's where we might have a small difference. I have this line that um, universal brotherhood is incompatible with gross inequality. Um, and uh, it's, it's like, yes, maybe someday we'll all be part of one world with these great enlightenment ideals. Mm-hmm. But it goes back to the beginning of the book that humans are tribal. Mm-hmm. It's we, we, it's almost instinctive that we want to belong to groups. Yeah. Right. Like, um, uh, just think of sports. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, once you connect with a team, sure. um, or I don't even know exactly how you would categorize yourself politically, but mm-hmm. that's your tribe too. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a tribe that you think is non-tribal, sure. it's kind of a tribe. Yeah. And so I think cosmopolitanism and universalism and a lot of Steve Pinker's incredibly impressive views, that's its own tribe. Yeah. Um, and it's it's what, what I think maybe these elites don't like to acknowledge is it's actually a pretty snooty tribe uh-huh. because to be part of this <laughs> cosmopolitan universalist enlightenment tribe. You got to know you, the lingo. You oh got to be pretty well read. And pretty well traveled. Yeah, and, and that's pretty, true too. Oh my gosh, Absolutely. you must have some kind of a philosophy background. I mean, not everybody gets this, right? Like you need to have read some books and mm-hmm. and for you to have such a positive view about people in France or Australia, well, probably you've been there. And yeah. there are a lot of people that have never been out of America, actually. Yeah. So, so I just simply point out that I have a line in my book that the only time in Hollywood films that that Earth is united is when we're being attacked by another planet. The aliens. <laughs> the aliens. They always bring us together. Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> you, you kind of, it's kind of hard to imagine a world where we're just all loving each other, all five billion of us. Sure. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I, I think this is a, a, a perhaps a good place to introduce some of the places where I um, have questions about the the theory that mm-hmm. you're offering um, and some of the the ideas that you explore. Specifically, it, it seems to me that it can be really challenging to differentiate between the deficiencies that are inherent in our politics um, and specifically in our political system and democracy, um, constitutional republic specifically, but democracy broadly, um, and things that are actually emerging challenges that are related to the current moment in our politics and perhaps growing tribalism. And I agree with you that in general, you know, humans are tribal. I certainly agree that you can't expunge it completely. I think you can have a much greater awareness of it. And over time, since our tribal loyalties are individual, that they tend to change, they're fluid, and that they can be more intense at one point in our lives and far less intense at another point in our lives, that we can do better. Um, I suspect, you know, there's humans have a propensity to to violence, that there is Mm -hmm. some innate tendency towards violence. We've, we've, Put that in check. Most of us, most of the time. And I think we can do the same thing with tribalism. However, politics is force. It is about forcing people to do things that they might not otherwise do. And democracy is a theory that um, relies upon or a system that relies upon people accepting that, you know, instead of me knocking you over the head and taking your things or instead of me knocking over the head to make you stay in line, we all go out and vote. And within some band, there are certain things that I can force you to do at that ballot box or with that ballot box, and you'll be okay with it. And you'll go along with it Mm -hmm. until you can get enough people to vote with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that dynamic will break down. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you'll go beyond the scope of those things. And sometimes you will create adversaries of people that don't have to be adversaries. Mm -hmm. If everything about education from school lunches to the curriculum becomes political, because this is the the way we've decided to do this, as opposed to, say, relying on something else, then you have nasty, knock-down, drag-out fights. Um, And it's hard for me to, to make a differentiation in many cases between places where, you know, it's impossible. Everything is political in many respects. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that has something to do with the circumstance we find ourselves in. And perhaps that has more to do with it than growing tribal affinities in in various other spaces. You know, that's such a huge topic. And I I have to think a lot more about it. But let me just make two small points. One is that... um, I'm actually talking about something very specific. It's, it's, we've always been tribal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so I, I don't know if we're, I doubt that we're more tribal than we used to be. Sure. Um, but what I'm looking at now is actually documentable. And that is that um, tribalism has taken over our political system. Um, and some of this is documentable in the sense that um, if you look at um, Pew Foundation studies, uh, just even 15 years ago, views on immigration Mm-hmm. Okay, Republicans and Democrats had way more overlap. Sure, way more. There were a lot of Democrats that, you know, they were really worried about this and that. And Republicans, right now, you, we're way more extreme. The right. right is way more extreme against, against, against. You know, want to shut it down. And the left is way more extreme in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, don't even use the word undocumented. I mean, it's just really different. Sure. Polls also about. Um, uh, um, sort of 
people used to not be consistently conservative or consistently liberal as much as they are now. And again, right. this is so this is not I agree with you. Like there's always a crying wolf thing. Oh, come on. You know, like uh, but there are these changes right now. Um, the number of people who say that uh, they are friends with a member of the opposite political party. Um, or that they want their child to marry somebody from the other political party. Sure. We're at a record high, like no. Yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. so so what I'm saying is it's almost like our political parties are starting to be like ethnic differences. Right. You know, and, and so I think I think you're right. I mean, it's hard to separate out these things, but I think there are also some changes that we're seeing now. Um, but you're right, too. It's not like there have been moments in history like this, right, before the Civil War, before the Civil Rights Movement. So, sure. so this is not, you know, um, this is not like this is completely unprecedented. I do think that the demographic challenge we're facing is unprecedented and a real test for America. This is different, sure. You know, the fact that whites are on the verge of possibly becoming or losing their majority status by 2044. That goes to the first thing you quoted, that now no group feels comfortably dominant Mm -hmm. um, and every group feels threatened. And it's the studies show that it's when groups feel threatened. I mean, think about this. It used to be just minorities who felt threatened, right? Um, But now whites feel threatened. 67% of working class whites feel that they are subject to more discrimination and persecution than minorities are. Right. So that's a big difference. That Although means, they're saying yeah. that with with respect to their whiteness, they feel oppressed. Right. Right. For school, well, but for yeah, for school positions, for right. jobs, affirmative action. But when people feel threatened like that, that's when they get more tribal. Yeah. They get more insular, and they it's harder to make them reach across those lines. Yeah. As you were refining your own point with respect to democracy v versus tribalism and the growing changing dynamics, it it dawned on me that the two things can reinforce one another yes. and that if in fact democracy is is perhaps in some circumstances helping to create deeper divides that those divides can manifest themselves as a growing tribal sentimentalism. And that growing tribal sentiment can create exactly the kind of bifurcation you were pointing exactly. out. And it's, you know, I, I, I've thought about many times about the State of the Union address that Bill Clinton gave, where he talked about building a border fence where Democrats were a heck of a lot more restrictionist than yeah. Clinton. The Clinton administration was particularly fusionist. There was something unique about them in that in that yes. they used language of the right. Absolutely. Um, but it's certainly the case that views have changed on these things. Um, but see, that's so helpful that you, you even point that out, right? Mm-hmm. Because one thing that I think is so frustrating is I see... Um, Again, it's this it's what I what I'm describing is these tribal positions. It's yeah. like any news item happens, North Korea, Iran, Russia, anything. Yeah. Right? yeah. And people don't seem to care whether their own party took the exact opposite side ten sure. years ago. Sure. It doesn't matter, right? Yeah. You just instantly <laughs> Yeah. And so I think it's just laudable that you even mentioned that. Well, um, we, we try here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try here. Um, but then the, on the second point you were making about the the challenge and the demographic shift that's taking place in this country, um, it, this is perhaps another point of disagreement um, between us because I tend to encounter pretty frequently uh, sort of the received wisdom about what is motivating the Trump voters um, and the narrative about white lash emerged 
immediately, like the night of the election. Um, I've, I've heard differing accounts. Maybe Jamel Bowie um, uh, was the first to coin it, but it might have also been um, Van Jones, Van Jones yeah. at CNN, who also used the phrase. And it's funny to me that um, they used this phrase before much of the exit poll Absolutely. data had actually been analyzed and that this narrative was readily available for people before anyone had really taken a look at what happened. Um, and it still seems to me that you know, amongst Trump voters, it is certainly the case that on the left that that so much of what Donald Trump has said is viewed as racist. It's not obvious to me that they cast ballots for him mostly thinking, I love the racist things he says, or that they even agreed those things were racist. Uh, for the most part, they have been in a situation where every single candidate they have supported has been deemed irredeemably racist and awful. Mm -hmm. um, Mitt Romney says he has binders full of women, and how could anyone imagine ever saying anything like that? It's the most sexist thing anyone had ever heard until we got uh, a groper-in-chief uh, in the office who grabs people by their genitals. Um, so, you know, I, it's it's difficult for me to to accept on face value, a lot of that narrative when, in fact, there seems to be a great deal of overlap between the actual views of the people who voted for Donald Trump and, say, the people who voted, um, uh, supported a candidate like Bernie Sanders. Yep. And the commonalities don't end there. I yeah. mean, even when we say, like, take America back, like, this is something that was being shouted by Howard Dean. And something that yep. was shouted in a way by Bernie Sanders and otherizing people, it can work along ethnic lines, yeah. but it can also work with the banksters. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't think we disagree, actually. I mean, a line that I keep saying is that we're, you know, roughly 60 million people voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's a lot of people. Sure. Right. So in a way, I think it's kind of part of the silliness of our discourse that we spend so much time. There's like studies and regression analyses. Which is it? Was it racism? Right. Or, you know, we need that simple story. Yeah. But we have 60 million people. And by the way, some of those include minorities. And, you know, you, you know that I in the book. I think he had record numbers uh, since, uh, not since W had blacks voted for a Republican president in those numbers, still single digits. Um, but I also think he had record numbers versus Romney and perhaps McCain with among Latinos, who is supposed to be vehemently racist against. Yeah. And so there are these are my favorite parts of the book where I describe that these there are these other things that the coastal elites don't pay attention to. For example, the role of the prosperity gospel and mm. religion and hope and all these weird things that um, just don't map easily onto just, as you say, simple white lash. Now, I have no doubt, by the way, that for some people, it was that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not just you should see some of these emails I get the hate mail. You know, I think I but I, I think we're not saying different things. Like, I think there are some people that are very anxious about the um, losing their country. Uh, and you know what's strange is, like, I, I just don't know why would we would immediately slap the label racist onto everybody that feels anxious about that. Sure. Right? Because let's say you were from— China and you 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 were there were demographic changes and the country was about to become majority white, right? You would feel anxious. Sure. You know, so so it's almost the, like a the natural new can be unsettled. Right. So yeah. instead of just shutting things down, oh you xenophobic, racist, you know, I think this is part of what I'm saying. Like we should we should actually try to talk to each other. Right. Um, so I think I'm on the same page as you there. Like I, I um, maybe you are going further than me and saying I don't think it was about race that much at all. Whereas I feel like it just it's all different, right? Mm -hmm. There are different 
people and different parts of the country. Um, even I just got back from Seattle. I feel like mm-hmm. the Seattle voters for Trump are seem to be totally different from the Boston voters for Trump. That you know, they're, sure. they're, America's a huge place. Yeah, yeah. No, our our tribal identities tend to be intersecting and overlapping in bizarre ways. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that they are always individual. That the strength of one's tribal loyalties can vary from person to person. I could be mostly Jamaican on a particular day in a particular context and at a particular time and then code switch and be mostly a black guy in Harlem. Right. Um, Generally speaking, I don't self-identify in that particular way because I don't I don't find much use. Yeah. Um, for that kind of categorization. Yeah. Um, but it's it's one of the challenges of reading um, your book, actually, is because you do so much empathizing with other sides and bringing the perspective of other sides. Sometimes I can't tell when you're offering your own perspective yeah. um, of someone's views and when you're providing description of, say, like what Trump voters are interested in. And I'm, I'm remembering something towards the end of the book uh, before the epilogue where you're, I think it's, to, I always get her name wrong. It's Tommy Lauren, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, who had this speech um, that she gave or a monologue anyways. It's amazing. Um, it's like, like, yeah. like 60 million people or something, yeah, some yeah. huge number of people yeah. clicked on it. And it's this, this anti Colin Kaepernick screed yep. and Colin had just started his, his thing where he was kneeling at these NFL matches and she was just completely outraged. Uh, um, and, I remember your description of the speech and the description of, you know, people like Tommy and perhaps this segment of white voters who are who have this feeling that minorities ought to be sort of grateful to them, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's part of the place where I, I thought there might be some disagreement, because when I hear them. My when I hear that entire debate, I generally hear on one side, it's they're trying to kill us. We're kneeling. This is the most important thing in in, in the universe to us. And on the other side, they don't care what you said. The only thing they care about is that you're kneeling for the flag because kneeling for the Pledge of Allegiance. That is what's important to them. And they respond racist and Mm -hmm. they respond on the other side. If you don't love this country, get out. And it's arguing past one another. It is working at cross purposes because everything is sort of animated and brought up to this level where it's black lives matter versus blue lives matter. Yep. Yep. Um, Okay. So I agree with that. I, in fact, I, I just, that I agree with, but I'm, I'm actually taking the words in her particular speech, mm -hmm. which is very interesting because she said, if you don't like this place, Colin, um, you know, because my ancestors, you know, fought for your rights and, and um, then you should just get out because, you know, there are a lot of people that want to be here. And so I was actually focusing on that because, I um, so I, I don't think this is exclusive of what you said. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of um, people and I sympathize with this. They feel like, you know, we we white people, we built this country. We wrote this Constitution. And now here's the part that I is tricky. We mm-hmm. let you in and now you're blaming us for its imperfections. <laughs> right. And and so I am and I'm not trying to just like play fair thing. I, I I actually can see it because I think the left has gone too far with this um almost just trashing the constitution, trashing, you know, I, I can see 
sometimes I get frustrated with that. Yeah. Like we need to do a better job saying, look, we've, we've really made a lot of mistakes. We don't want to whitewash our history. But, um, you know, maybe the founders weren't, they're not war, they're not the worst war criminals. Uh-huh. Is that all they were? Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. come on, you know, George Washington was a slave owner, but was, that's not all he was, yeah. right? And it gets distorted. Um, but I do think, and maybe this is the where we differ a little bit, I think the Constitution doesn't belong to any... Yes, our founders were white, but mm-hmm. they found that the Constitution doesn't doesn't belong to white people. You know, right. it, they the, the the people. We certainly don't disagree on that point. Okay, 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 okay <laughs> great. So, so, so it really isn't um, anybody's right to let people. Yeah. in. I mean, it, it's it's um because when you start expecting people to feel grateful, then it's almost like we own this country more than you. Right. So it's a very fine line because I do feel people should be grateful to the country, to the right. Constitution. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think you should be grateful to a particular race. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I don't I, I don't even know that perhaps she said in that context, you should be grateful. And maybe it comes across as potentially being interpreted as you should be grateful to white people. Um, it, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty confident that she wouldn't want to frame it yeah, that you're way probably right explicitly. About that, yeah. <laughs> and in, in which case, you know, in my experience, most Republicans who see themselves as Americans first, who yeah. self-identify in that way, you know, the, now, I'll take this in a slightly from a slightly different vantage point. We talked about kind of tribal identities, and you mentioned it in the book as well, actually, which I think is just a very fine point that I don't encounter many places, um, that our tribal affinities can be much more intense. Some tribal affinities can be tr- much more intense than others. Um, and you'll see among black voters who vote in an extraordinarily, there's extraordinary solidarity between them. That block always moves yeah. together, at least um, since, I guess, the New Deal around that time. Right. Um, and that is pretty unusual. There is something about voting Democrat that at this point is either a part of being black um, or is just a, a central component of identifying with one another or perhaps uh, having some appreciation for your shared fate mm-hmm. as a group. Um, and for white voters, I don't know that that sort of dynamic exists. You Until know, recently. The, even even yeah. recently. Like the truth is that the white vote has always been kind of divided between the two parties in, about way, in ways that are pretty representative of what's happening now. There's been some shifting. Yeah, well, this goes to um, back to when I say there's something different right now. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to this. I think that um, the the split between what we might call coastal, urban, multicultural whites, Mm -hmm. that is whites in New York and L.A. and um, D.C. and Trump's base, the the, the rural, southern, heartland whites, Mm -hmm. that divide has become almost like an ethnic divide. And I think if you look at the, I I think a lot of people are saying that for the first time in the 2016 election, you saw some of the um, working class whites voting more like a block like you were referring to. So you're absolutely right. It's not all whites. And Mm -hmm. I've actually have been writing about this, how the, uh, in some ways, the um, the America is so complicated because the whites in our urban multicultural eras areas um, feel more scorn and dis- suspicion and distrust of the whites in the middle of the country mm-hmm. um, than they do. Tor- they're much more favorable towards minorities and much more likely to intermarry with them. Mm-hmm. So, so I, so you're right. It's not. It, it's 
but I think if you if you divide America's white majority into the two groups I've just talked about, you're going to start to see some some patterns yeah. that are more like what you're describing, more, and, more tribal, more ethnic. Yeah, it's interesting that you put it that way because I'm thinking of thinking back to something I, I mentioned earlier, like when we kind of have that streetlight effect, and in in my own thinking about identity and tribalism and and stuff. Uh, oftentimes when I arrive at race, I am having conversations where I am trying to point out the various ways that race um, divides us and obscures the truth and perhaps shows us things that we might not otherwise see and creates these opportunities for us to kind of neatly cleave things off in ways that um, might seem to be explanatory, but on their own might not explain Mm -hmm. nearly as much. And, you know, the fact that there are regional differences yes. that correspond pretty tightly with a lot of these different political affiliations. The fact that there are, you know, people in those groups, lots of them actually who voted for, you know, Barack Obama yes. and, um, uh, and Donald Trump, you know, is overlooked and the. And rea- switch back with Connor Yeah, Lamb. and switch back. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think it all kind of relates to, again, this broader point that, There is something going on in America today that many people are quite uncomfortable with. Um, But the question of whether it's easy for those of us who dislike Donald Trump, and I can say us because I dislike all politicians, so that's not hard. (laughs) Um, But it's easy for those of us who dislike Donald Trump to buy into a narrative that casts him as the worst possible monster and the people who supported him as the worst possible monster. And to imagine that that's the reason he's winning because they hate our ideas versus recognizing the things about our politics in general that might have contributed. Oh, to I'm totally what's different with you here. there. I'm totally. So so we're, we're concluding this really on the same page. I mean, I I have uh, that that's kind of been my humanization point. So in mm-hmm. that sense, I, you know, like I. Um, I have talked to, um, I was somebody not surprised by the outcome of the election. I'm sort of proud of that because at Yale Law School, 200 students, uh, or just one, in, actually 600 students, mm-hmm. only one open Trump supporter. Yeah. But I knew from talking to people mm-hmm. quietly behind, it wasn't necessarily that they were voting, but they had parents, grandparents, cousins, boyfriends, you know. Right. And the information was so bad. Um, the Hillary's office, Hillary is from Yale Law School. So so I could see that the, the people in her Brooklyn office, they're so smart, they're wonderful, they're my students, all from the same background, uh-huh. right? No working class people, nobody from the Midwest. So, so I completely agree with you that a reductionist view of the Trump voter or, mm-hmm. you know, is part of the problem. And, it, and, and to the extent people want change and let's say they want to get to a different place, they need to start figuring this out as opposed to just you know, assigning a few adjectives to 60 million people. Yeah. 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 No, this has been a, a great conversation. I, I find, you know, my, I think the position I've arrived at, and it's so often the case that I'll sit down and have a conversation like this and I'm working through my ideas as we go, which I think is much more interesting than arriving and you know, knocking each other's heads together and leaving unsatisfied. Um, but I think the position that I've, I've arrived at is one that, presumes, and this is my default position anyways, that there are lots of things that are perhaps not very good to introduce into our politics. And while it is challenging to get people to move beyond their their tribal instincts um, and ethnic tribalism, um, 
I, I think that the best chance that we have to do that sort of thing is to not necessarily meet on the f- political field mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. order to have these contests where we duke it out there and things become zero com- sum that need not be zero sum, that we can have uh, a more diverse landscape where we make choices about our own families, our own communities, and the more the more local those decisions end up being, the less likely I think a lot of these nasty fights become. But in a world where we have seen, you know, a decline in productivity growth and we have seen a slowing in the rate of income growth, the possibility for these broader national movements, for a broader sensibility that I've been I'm economically dislocated. So is yeah. everyone around me. We have to do something, anything um, that kind of environment can produce something very bad. Yes. I don't I don't know if Donald Trump is Hugo <sighs> Chavez. Um, but it does seem to me that the possibility for anyone to produce a candidate, a populist candidate who appeals to those sentiments and then can abuse them later um, is is very high. And uh, I think there are a lot of reasons for us to look at this more carefully and, and thoughtfully. So that's, I suppose, my own final point. I'd love to get any concluding thoughts that you have or kind of anything that, that you think maybe we didn't cover that you would love listeners to get. Yeah, I, you know, I feel that um, America is one of the fastest uh, self-correcting societies. Again, it's because I look at societies like Venezuela and, uh-huh. and Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, you know, Burma. Yeah. I mean, um, so... I think that the 2016 election was a shock for a lot of people, and it could go either way. I'm not being Pollyanna, right? Right now, if if I think if both sides really play extreme to the base, we could get even more polarization, more of exactly what you don't want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see a lot of self-correction, and I, I tend to be—maybe it's because it's what I try to do in my own classroom. Like, I— um, I guess I'm a little bit proud of this. Like I have what I genuinely think of as, well, actually they're well known to be the most diverse classes at Yale Law School. And I do not, you're going to like this. I do not just mean racial or ethnically. Like I literally have, they are racially and ethnically diverse. Uh You know, I had nine Muslim Americans and Asians and African Americans, but also conservatives took it. And, you know, that is all forms of viewpoint diversity, which I think is more mm-hmm. in class, you know. Um, it's the only sort of diversity that matters to me yeah, personally. And, and, and I know I, other people differ on that, but yeah. And I try to have these conversations. Now, admittedly, I, my class is called International Business Transactions. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm not talking about abortion and, you know, and, and, and really trick, tricky issues. Yeah. But I still talked about the election and democracy and these, you know, ethnic relations. And I just laid the ground rules and I, I force these conversations. We had one of these three months after Donald Trump's election. And, you know, it was not easy. It was, in fact, I, it, it, it was, got so hot. And afterwards, I wasn't sure I ever wanted to do it again. But two days later, people said, you know, that's the first conversation we've had with people from the other side. Yeah. And I said, are you kidding? It's been, it's been six months after he's elected. They're like, oh, no, no, we, we obviously just talked to our friends, like we are safe spaces, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, it was, I don't want to make it romantic, like it was this great kumbaya thing. No. I mean, people still disagreed, sure. you know. But the point is that they were engaging with each other as um, human beings and not necessarily as monsters, as yeah. immoral monsters. Yeah, yeah. There was a very big pro guy who hunted, and who was from a poor Southern family, and oh my God, you know, a person on the other side from 
you know, Black Lives Matter. And it was it was OK. Sure. It was OK. Such that people wanted to go out for a beer afterwards to fight more. Yeah. OK. But yeah. that's OK. It's, yeah. At least it's over a beer. You yeah. Know? So no, good, good you know, natured tussling yeah. is, is not a bad thing. And, and when I, I worry that we're moving away from that, yeah. where, you know, where we're 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 just going just sticking with your own. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I think you you're. I'm moving in in that direction. I, I I have tended to be a bit more skeptical of you know conversations about the echo chambers and what's happening on social media, and I am still quite skeptical of a lot of the most extreme versions of that. Mm-hmm. But you're right. But existing in an echo chamber, never coming into contact with other people, has to be a, a huge part of why it's so easy to otherize. Um, one other, you know, positive note that we can punch out on is we. Um, I spend my day at a company called Freethink. We make videos and stuff. Um, but one group that we profiled is a group called Make America Dinner Again, oh. and I remember watching this video of these these two young ladies who both on the West Coast had no idea what a Trump supporter, you know, looked like or sounded right. like. They'd never met one in right. their lives. And they got together this dinner and, you know, they argued and they fought, but they came to appreciate one another on both sides in exactly. very different ways. And I, I do think that that's terribly important. So yeah. hopefully, uh, hopefully all of this starts to, to bubble up. Yeah. I'm going to be optimistic with you. <laughs> so, Amy, thank you so much. For, thank you. Uh, taking Thanks time for having chat. me. Enjoy it. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column, 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 column.